0: Own life. Like, and over here, people kind of feel life is happening to them. This person really feels like I'm, you know, I'm kind of taking action in my own life. And so, really helping him to kind of hone. And then, once he figured that out, all of a sudden he made major changes and he's extremely happy and successful in a very different way. So, I just love coaching clients through that whole process. I find that really fun. For my own, for the other story, would be my, and I talk about this in my own why, my sense of purpose. Is I was diagnosed in grade eight with a learning disability. Told by a clinical psychologists that I'd be lucky to finish high school. That was actually the feedback I got. And how...
1: Welcome to Innovation and in Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers—really, as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Dr. Karen Gordon. Thanks for doing this, Doctor.
0: Thank you so much, Jess. I'm pumped. I'm pumped. I'm excited to go.
1: So uh, maybe to start with, but let's start with the book. Tell us about The Three Chairs.
0: Yeah, The Three Chairs. It is honestly, it's a bit of a summary of my entire career, the last 25 years, working with families and organizations, and it's just been an incredible process, but I'll give a little visual. There you go for all of our visual. Jess, are you a visual learner out of curiosity? or are you, what kind of learning style are you?
1: I don't know, because I'm. Like I'm originally an art school dropout, but but I listen to maybe like three or four audiobooks a week. So I think I'm yeah. a pretty auditory guy. You're
0: auditory. Okay. Well, I'm visual and I know a lot of people are visual. And so there you go. There's the three chairs. And so this is all based on science. But the, the basically the book is about three attitudes that people have, the three mindsets or the three types of confidences that people actually have. So in the left chair you've got the insecure person or the insecure leader. The right chair you've got the arrogant leader. And the middle chair, you've got the confident great leader. And the entire book is around, based on science, helping people to kind of identify which chair they're sitting in, in different parts of their life, and then how does it actually affect their decision-making. And when you actually understand the science behind it, you can actually make really fairly decent, predictable guesses on how people actually make decisions from communication to goal-setting, to risk-taking, to feedback, to even how what kind of person they're chosen to they're attracted to in terms of a relationship partner like it's really neat once people actually understand it but these are the three attitudes the left chair is the insecure person the person that kind of puts themselves down they're tough on themselves the right chair that arrogant leader they're cocky they're arrogant they're full of themselves they'll tell you where to go they don't care you know how you feel about it yourself uh, at the end of it and then you've got that middle chair leader, that middle chair mindset, the person that really really feels good about themselves. They have a sense of confidence, but they also have a sense of humility, and that is a really big piece of that middle chair. That that leader that really believes. And I know a lot, but I don't know a lot. I don't know everything, so I'm going to surround myself with people that know more. And I'm going to ask for feedback. I'm going to get myself coaches and mentors. And so the entire book is really helping all of us to develop our own leadership, whether or not we're 15 or 50, to learn how to sit in the middle chair because they're all learned skills.
1: Yeah, you know, I know that you have worked with a lot of famous organizations, everybody would recognize over the years. I'm interested how you got into this work to begin with.
0: It's a great question. So I did an underground psych master's in counseling. I was 22 when I finished my graduate work. And so I was uh, really young. I was asked by a local doctor, in my hometown outside of Toronto to start up a counseling practice within his medical center. And because I was so young, I had all these teenagers show up on my doorstep and there was 200 doctors in this medical office. And when the word got out that there's a new counselor in town that actually liked working with teenagers, I became popular really quickly. And so my practice exploded. Within two years, I was at full capacity and I was doing writing books and doing TV and national speaking tours. And so I really ended up focusing on teenagers, millennials. That was kind of my area of specialty and became a little bit of a teen or millennial expert here in Canada. So I did that for the first 10 years. And then what happened was a lot of my companies at that time were sponsored by big companies here in Canada, Pepsi, Loblaws, Maple Leaf Foods, Pizza Pizza, some of these as a fellow Canadian. Jess, you would know. And so I. I was encouraged by some of these organizations, the CEOs, to say, Karen, this content is so interesting. You understand millennials. Could you transfer that knowledge into the workplace? So, by this point, I had done my doctorate in systems, family and marriage systems, uh, marriage and family systems. And so, I thought, what an interesting concept because a lot of companies were then hiring millennials and they didn't know how to manage them. They they have expectations, different value system, different communication style. And because I'm trained in systems, it was actually a pretty easy transfer. So, I basically took all the data that I knew from family systems and transferred into organizational systems. And so now I still work with families. People actually are often curious. So I still work with families. I do. I leave one day a week for working with families and then four days a week working with companies. And so now we work with companies all around the world, seven countries, and uh, it's been incredibly fun just around how universal leadership principles are. And certainly with what I teach in, in the book, it's really fundamental foundational leadership skills that all of us should be learning. We should be learning this in school. Most of us don't, but we should be learning these schools to help us be more successful at work and actually at home. So it's been an incredible journey. I never could have predicted this spot twenty five years later.
1: Too fun. You know, I'm interested in this idea of. I feel like in different situations, I'm in the insecure box seat, and ah, I need some okay. more confidence. I love and it. I you feel like
0: identifying Jess. I like yeah, that. and then <laughs> I see
1: in other situations. Yeah. I am in the like, you know, like walking around act thinking I'm a big deal, you know? Right. And so yes. I'm interested in, in either of those scenarios, tips for, you know, when you recognize that about yourself, how to kind of center yourself and get back to that middle chair.
0: So what you're experiencing right now is what a lot of people do is when they actually first learn the chairs. And by the way, I teach this concept to as young as five-year-olds. Once I, once I put chairs in front of people and I can explain it, people can start identifying, wow, in this environment, I'm in the middle chair, in this environment, I'm in the, in the left chair. So let me just say that nobody sits in one chair 100% of the time, right? Like we're all moving around. When I think about kind of a confident great leader, it's the person that really sits in that middle chair I'd say 80% of the time, all right? But nobody's going to sit in one chair at a time. And what I find really interesting is when I get people to kind of separate work life from home life. So a lot of times I'll have people say, you know, Karen, at work, I'm feeling pretty good. But with a lot of the business leaders I work with, they'll say, you know what? Yeah, I'm totally sitting in the middle chair at work. I'm a go-getter. I take initiative. I'm free pack. But man, when I get home, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm over here and my spouse is over here or vice versa. And so we have we can have different confident levels in different kinds of parts. And so to your point, Jess, I think the first thing is to really start our awareness, like just even understanding these three chairs, all of a sudden our our awareness has just kind of gone up a few notches, right? So the first step is saying, okay, where am I sitting in different parts of my life? Where am I sitting at work? Where am I sitting with my clients? Where am I sitting with my partner or my kids, my in-laws? And then what do I need to do to get myself in the middle chair? So the question I like to ask clients is if I if I'm a magician and I can basically poof, I can as a magician, I can make you sit in the middle chair when you're with this person, what would you do differently? And All of a sudden, if we can kind of start thinking that way, all of a sudden people can actually start filling in the blanks. Well, if I'm sitting in the middle chair, I would assert myself. I would not be afraid of conflict. I'd voice, you know, I would try to problem solve. It's really interesting once people start Uh, visualizing almost themselves in that middle chair, answers start flowing a lot quicker in terms of how they would actually respond in different situations.
1: You know, so I'd be interested to have you weigh in on something. This is a question I ask a lot of different times when I get somebody on the show who's, they've done rapid growth from zero to a billion in in short years, right? I think I asked them, I've asked a few people this. I'm interested in where you weigh in on it. I say like, as an entrepreneur, especially like if you're like the visionary on the team, there's this problem of like, when you're making something new, how to know when to trust the feedback of everybody telling you how dumb it is and when to trust yourself.
0: Mm. because
1: I feel like I've made mistakes on both sides of that in my career. Yeah. So I'm always interested in people's decision tree. I'm wondering what advice you'd have for entrepreneurs.
0: I think it's, oh, I think it's a great question. And I don't know if there's an easy answer to it, to be quite honest. Um, think of like Seinfeld. How many years did Seinfeld like think that it wasn't really going to go anywhere? Was it like the eighth year and then finally kind of got traction? Like, I think it's a really interesting, you know, sometimes I think, you know, from a risk-taking perspective, here's what I would say. Okay, this is what I would say about risk-taking is never risk more than you, you're you afraid, than, than you're willing to lose. So, you know, when I think about the person in the middle chair and I get lots of people as an entrepreneur, I get lots of people asking me about kind of entrepreneurship. I will, I'm a huge fan of entrepreneurship because I am one. I'd say go for it, give it everything you've got, but never risk more than you can actually afford to lose. So if you still have that vision, you still kind of believe in it and you're still kind of getting mixed messages, be open to that feedback as much as you can. But when do you actually say, you know what, enough, is if it's actually costing you too much. And I've seen that with some entrepreneurs where they've kind of given everything, but then all of a sudden it's affecting their health, it's affecting their marriage, their bank accounts kind of drying up. And so I think it's almost those kind of value systems. You almost have to you know, have the goal and the vision, but you have to kind of have your value system right beside it. Because if that value system starts kind of being ignored, this is where people really fall apart. This is where, you know, people literally kind of, because I think, I think it's a great question. And I think some ideas just take a lot longer. And then some ideas we got to get out as fast as possible because it's just either not a good idea or it's costing us too much.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I feel like the pressure only gets amped up when you've raised millions or potentially tens of millions. Like, you know, I was a 28 year old CEO of my first fund and there's a lot of times like when you're genuinely doing something new and everybody's trusting you to invent the future. And there's this like, you know, you hear the, the Henry Ford quote about like, if I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? And like Steve jobs talks about right. like, Sometimes people don't know what they want until they see it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this, like in the nuances, when it's not just your health, it's all of their money and, you know, these things. And it's like, it's this sense of like, I I guess I feel like I've really struggled with this in life of like, knowing this thing of like, okay, when do I, when do I trust my gut? And when do I trust my advisors
0: Mm -hmm. if they're
1: in conflict? You know? And they're in
0: conflict. And my my answer to that, and I think it's such a good question. My answer to that would be really listening to your value system because we've got our gut and our intuition, and we've got values, and they're different. And hopefully, they're all aligned. And I think I think making great decisions. Actually, I talk about this in the book. One entire chapter is about how do you make good decisions because I get I get tons of entrepreneur CEOs asking me, should I sell my family business? It's been, in my gener- it's been in my family for like four generations. You know, my gut tells me one thing, my value system tells me. So when there's a conflict, there's like, there's this internal war that's actually happening. And so I think it is a really hard answer, but the, the simpler way of, lo- uh, of figuring it out is what are those value systems? And are you making your decisions according to your values? And if there's a mismatch, you're, gonna, you're, you're heading for trouble. And so really getting people to, to really uh, hone in what are my values in my life, my professional life, my personal life, and am I living my life according to those values? Because if you're not, it's uh, there's such a disconnect. I mean, the stats are like almost 80 percent of, of adults are dissatisfied with their life and career because there's such a disconnect. I think COVID has been interesting for that, right? I think COVID has really made people rethink do I really want to be living this life? Do I really want to be having this company? So, I think COVID is. Made a lot of people kind of hit a bit of a reset, a rethink button, but that is such a fundamental piece around people that really are sitting in that middle chair. They're, they're making their decisions according to what their value system is, not necessarily with what other people want their value system to be.
1: That, that feels like it would require some quiet reflection with phone on airplane mode.
0: Oh, let me tell you, you know, a lot of the best innovators, they figure out their ideas when they're on a walk in nature, when they're in the shower, when they're driving, when it's quiet Because when I ask people, you know, the the concept about values is so interesting, right? Because, you know, we all kind of put in our like business, you know, proposals and all that. But when I really get people to really figure out what their values are, a lot of people don't know. And they're not able to actualize it. It's like these fluffy words that are kind of out there. And so, you know, one of the things I try to do with all the leaders I work with is really identify not what are your top five values that you will live your life according to. And then how are you going to actualize that in your life? What's the, what's the behavior? Because otherwise it's too fluffy. It's too out there. If it's not actualized into an action statement, it will have no impact on a person's life. So to your point, yes, it does take quiet reflection. It does take going to a cottage, going to retreat for a day or two to get really quiet around what is it I really want for my life. And what are the steps I need to do to, to make that happen? And I think if people can be anchored in that, it can be turbulent all around us, but then we have a sense of centeredness.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Well, listen, uh, tell us one of your favorite stories from the book.
0: One of the favorite stories, oh my goodness, there's so many. There's probably two. The one would be actually uh, a business owner that I was working with who had, I think he was in second or third generation. And to your point about the kind of the values, and he was feeling he was torn all over, you know, he was torn because he had this legacy and I I work with a ton of family business and that my background in family systems is like perfect for this because I understand business but I understand the, the family dynamics. And so, and just really helping him kind of really hone the values. And he didn't know. He really felt he was, you know, he had inherited this, this business. He had inherited his money as well. So really felt like the loyalty, the obligation to kind of continue it. Thought he should be kind of giving it to his son. I talked about that in the book and kind of this whole wrestling. And it wasn't until I got him to really be still and reflect on what is it you want? Like other people can want other things for you, but what is you want? And he's like, I don't know. I'm like, that's the problem. And so I, I said, you've got to figure that out. And I kind of ask different questions to help him really hone in. What is it you really want? What are those values? This is your life. This is not anybody else's life. And that's again very much of that middle chair. That middle chair mindset is very much around. I'm I'm really the creator of my own life. Like and over here, people kind of feel life is happening to them. This person really feels like I'm you know I'm kind of taking action my own life. And so really helping him to kind of hone. And then once he figured that out, all of a sudden he made major changes, and he's extremely happy and successful in a very different way. So I just love coaching clients through that whole process. I find that really fun for my own, for the other story would be my, I talk about this in my own, why my sense of purpose is I was diagnosed in grade eight with a learning disability told by clinical psychologist that I'd be lucky to finish high school. That was actually the feedback I got and how I received that feedback and then how my parents responded and then how I was kind of able to kind of push through it and wrestle through that. That's where my own leadership journey really started. And so I'm very passionate about that because you know, we all have external stressors in our life. You know, some of it for me it was in my LD, some people, it's parents divorcing or financial. We all have different stressors. And so often that left chair is kind of like, I have no control. I have no control. I can't do anything. And so much of the book is that, you know, we can all choose to learn to sit in the middle chair. We, it takes work, it takes effort, but it is possible with intention. And so I start the book with that. And just in terms of that, that's, that was really my own purpose. My, one of my, one of my why's for the book and just kind of giving hope, you know, I really want people to have a sense of hope that confidence and great leadership are learned. Like these are things that we can all learn if, if we want to.
1: Yeah. You know, maybe switching gears a little bit, thinking about the, the business that you're in, Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like I feel like, so our, our consulting firm, Grace Hook Advisors, you know, we've got clients like Google and Intel and General Electric and stuff. Most of that, I feel like we lucked into it's like either I have a friend who got hired there and got us in, or I hired one of my employees who used to work there and they just okay. called their old friends, yeah, you know, like yeah. I'm interested advice you have for people who want to break into big fortune 500 accounts or things like that. Any, any thoughts that you have of, of how you've been successful?
0: Yes. Well, my secret sauce is I tell people to go in the side door and the back door. I, that's my metaphor. I'm very visual in terms of how I coach. And so what, what do a lot of us do? We go on LinkedIn, we make kind of like connections that people that never really respond back to us. We, you know, we apply on online applications And the stats are what, 89% of jobs are actually through networking somebody that you know. So much of success is around relationship. And it doesn't mean that you have to be born and raised in an affluent area. That's totally not true. That was not my experience. I had to kind of work and hustle from the ground up. But if you can really kind of focus on developing really strong relationships right out of the gate is going to be really important. And think about not the front door, but the back door, the side door. So what do I mean by that? So front door would be kind of applications online side door would be like, who do I possibly know is a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend that has somebody that knows somebody in Google? And you start kind of making those connections. You start chatting with people. You start kind of reaching out. When I So I produced my first TV show. I worked part-time in TV. I produced my first TV show when I was 25 years old. I had no TV experience. I had this crazy idea when I was 23 years old to produce TV, even though I have like no experience. And but I had a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend who knew somebody in Much Music because it was a music talk show. And so I did one introduction that introduced me to another introduction. It, like literally, it's like a, it was like eight people down. But by the time I finally got and had my interview with Much Music, that person introduced me to the CEO of Global, Ken West, and they ended up producing my show. So, you know, I it was a national show, we did it for three, it was super fun but it was like i had i had like one little contact and it's like you just kind of like keep going so to me if you kind of think about the side and the back door is relationships who do you know like we all have about at least 200 contacts in our influence Who do we know that knows somebody of somebody of somebody in the area they actually want to work in? That's more of a side door. And the other thing is volunteering the amount of people that I know. So, okay. So Robert Herjavec did my, did my forward in the book. He talks about this great story about how he actually kind of first got into his first business was around. He actually ended up volunteering. I know tons of different business leaders that, If they want to work somewhere, yes, you can kind of apply for the job. But why not do an internship? And if they don't have a posted, then go go create one. Take initiative. Have that kind of design because internships, volunteering, cost companies nothing. It's a great trial run. It's a great way to test drive. But it's amazing that people don't. A lot of people don't think like that. It's like no, I've got to I've got to earn money. Well, okay, yeah, but it's such such a short term. Short-term lot, like think long-term gain, like think big picture, but I find a lot of people just want the money right now. And so they're not willing to, to kind of do in those volunteers, but I find volunteering has been one of the secret sauces um, of, of really kind of breaking into like the back door in terms of the organization. So that's what I would say.
1: It's, it's funny, bringing up much music, I, I you know, I haven't, I've spent a lot of years out of Canada. And like,
0: right, I know. You can everybody doesn't Canadian.
1: know, like, we weren't getting MTV. We were all. not
0: getting MTV. So yes, for all of our American listeners, so much music is like the equivalent of Canadian MTV. I know. And it was, uh, I mean, they don't even have it anymore. But back then, it was like a really big deal. And so it's, but, you know, thinking and... And that's where, again, that emotional intelligence, that middle chair is like, know what you want, right? Know what you want, have that goal, but then step on the gas, like take initiative. There, there's so much of a mindset that somehow life is going to be handed to us. And I think about, you know, when I speak to young people, when I speak to even people in their 20s and 30s that are dissatisfied, then do something. Like stop complaining. Like know what the problem is, but do something about it. There, it's really interesting that one of the things we have really done a terrible job, I think, within the, the educational system is not teaching problem solving, not teaching like if there's like if this is a problem, what are you going to do to fix it? So um, I'm very solution focused in my mindset, and I feel like so you know yes, there's challenges, but like let's get creative around doing something different for a better outcome.
1: So what, what year did you start producing your first TV show?
0: I was when it finally, it took me two years to produce it, but it, I started when I was 23 and then it actually hit the airwaves at 25. And then we sold it across Canada, the US and Singapore, actually. And I have and, like zero television training. Like this is the, and I, and I partnered up with all the five record labels in Canada. Sony. What, what was the show about? The show was called Fill Your Guts. And it was, I had this crazy idea to marry psychology with music. And I thought, you know, music is so interesting because music is like poetry and people are like pouring their heart and soul out on paper. And so I thought, could I, and, and music was also a way for me to connect with teenagers. And again, back in that time, I was focused on teenagers and millennials. Yeah. What, what year would this have been? This would have been like 90, 95 to 97, 98. And so I just had this idea. Could I partner with record labels? Could I get... Record labels behind this project, and could they give me access to their to their bands? And I would interview these celebrities, these musicians, about issues important to teenagers. So I would talk to, you know, Britney Spears, the funny thing, I actually had an opportunity to interview Britney Spears, but I ran out of money. So I actually declined the interview. Oops, (laughs) that would have been a good one to have in the can. But it was, it was really, you know, it was really great as a way just to kind of sit down and talk to musicians and hear about, you know, how do they deal with goal setting and anxiety and stress and wellness? How do they set boundaries? How do they say no? that's a good one. How did it, how do, you know, I mean, the, the concepts in this book are so universal in every single industry, but music is such a draw for millennials. And so I thought we'll make it as a music talk show. So it was fun. A lot of fun, ton of work, crazy amount of work. I think I would have earned more if I had worked at McDonald's, but that is okay. It, it kind of, it it was so fun and it, and it got me going and it was just a way, a great way to kind of launch my career.
1: You know, I'm interested, you, you see so many entrepreneurs if they've, as they've, embraced inbound marketing and realized like, oh, just having an intern put up a fluffy Facebook post doesn't actually generate revenue for us. We actually have to do something that's gonna connect with humans. And you've seen so many more, and even investment funds moving into YouTube channels. And then some even going back all the way to traditional TV. I'm interested in any thoughts you have for people who they're like you, no, had no, currently have no experience in TV or doing a show and they want to break into it. What, what kind of, what kind of lessons do you wish you'd known before you started?
0: You mean for traditional TV? Do you yeah. mean, traditional TV? The, I would say the advice I would give for traditional TV, it's, it's going to be all about relationships. So if you can do some kind of volunteering internship, that's going to be your, your best way actually in. Or if you know somebody who works in there, saying, you know, you know, and just kind of really making it like a really good pitch. I think I'm trying to think around when I first, I'll, yeah, go ahead.
1: I'll give you an example. So okay. a really good friend of mine last night, uh, she just got a commitment from Warner brothers for 250 grand for a pilot. So she's got some connections. She actually has a music celebrity who's going to be in it. That's committed, but she's, she's done a lot of great things in life, but not TV. Any, any thoughts for her?
0: Okay. So this isn't your, that's, this is not you, right? No, this is, <laughs> I have a friend. <laughs> Yeah, Whenever it, somebody says I have a friend, I'm always, I'm, I'm just wondering, okay?
1: <laughs> no, I wish I had 250 grand from Warner Brothers.
0: I was thinking, okay, maybe he's like, Jess is going into a new direction. Okay. So uh, yeah, so I would say, think of tell. So television, you almost have to just like take your take your focus off of it. I mean, all it is, it's like a mirror, right? So I think the most important thing is to really focus on whoever is doing the interview. Like, try to almost like zone out all that kind of noise, the crew. Like, so you have to just stay, raise your focus would be my first thing. The second thing is practice out loud a lot. So. So I work in Canada at the, the number one talk show, City Lime, their leadership and relationship expert. I've been there for like 12 years. And even though I've been doing this, like I've been in TV for 20, 20 years, I still, when I'm doing an interview, I will like, I don't take Uber to the studio. I will drive because I'm talking for 45 minutes out loud. So having that kind of muscle memory is really important because you have to be And a lot of times, even when I say something, when I'm like, oh, that doesn't really sound right. Or, you know, I've got to reword that because especially in TV, it's not like this. We have like, whatever, it's 30 minutes. In TV, you've got like four minutes. So you've got to really hone in that message. And a lot of times I don't even figure out how to hone it unless I'm actually practicing it loud. So I would say, try to zone out all the noise, just focus completely on the eye contact and watching how that person is actually responding to you. And then practice, 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 and then practice in front of people, because that's going to really kind of help you know how to, you know, maybe what parts to focus in and what parts actually to, to change or to tweak.
1: Well, I, I want to bring the book back into this discussion. By the way, if people want their own copy, is the best place to go to dkleadership.org or go to Amazon or what? what where's best? If
0: they want bulk, come to dkleadership.org, uh, which DK stands for Dr. Karen. So dkleadership.org. If they want like an individual book or kind of books under 50, go to Amazon. That's the best way.
1: Okay. So thinking about this, like I, I could see breaking into television or, or even just starting a YouTube channel or something like this. I could see very easily a lot of us being in that insecure seat. Any tips to help us, to help us get to that middle seat of a more centered place?
0: Yeah, excellent question. So I would say the best way to do it, two things. Number one, think about people who are in, let's say it's like YouTube channel. Think about that person, a YouTube person that is in the middle chair. And, and just watch it and take notes about what is it that you are seeing. Because what you have to do is you have to really hone in on the body language. What are they doing with their eyes, their shoulders? They're leaning in. Are they talking? Are they leaning back? Just pay attention to the body language. Pay attention to the tone of voice. Pay attention with what they do with their head. Do they talk a lot? Do they talk too little? And just make a crazy amount of notes and you'll start seeing a very powerful pattern. So that'd be kind of the first thing. And the second thing is then to practice it in front of real people. And practice whatever you're gonna do in front of re- real people, real audience. And then watch how they're responding because as a speaker i noticed this like i would prepare a keynote and i love doing things in front of a live audience because i would watch them i could see their faces i could see when they're leaning forward when they're leaning back i could see what i was saying that was really drawing them and i could see when they were actually totally tuning out so so having real people in front really helps you know where to kind of what part of your message is really resonating i think with them um and then ask for their feedback you know get like five ten people do your thing and say, what did you like? And what do I have to do a little bit different? Get that, you know, that's that middle chair mindset saying, I, wanted, I, wanted be, I want to, I wanna be, I wanna be great at this, you know? And so asking for feedback, because a lot of times people won't give their feedback. They're they're your friends, your mom, they're afraid to hurt your feelings, they're gonna tell you everything is amazing, but you're like, no, actually, I really wanna know what's not working. So ask people, and so what I actually like to do is I specifically will ask for both types, because a lot of people will not give the constructive if you don't ask for it. What did you like and what did you not like? What do I have to work on? And and really being intentional about those two parts because otherwise a lot of times people just do this and that's not gonna help us grow, right? So you have to ask for both sides of the ledger.
1: I love it. Well, listen, this has been great. Congratulations on getting the new book out. Thanks for making time to come on the show.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Jess.
1: You bet. Bye everyone.